Hello, everyone, and welcome to the False Nines. Uh, this is a bi-weekly footballing discussion. I am your host, Zach Pensack, alongside my friend, Adam Goffin. Adam, how are we going into winter? Footy, Zach. Ho, ho, ho. Footy. Nice, nice. Festive periods upon us. Um, do you have any fun plans for for Christmas, Adam? Quarantining, washing my hands, and wearing a mask, Zach. Same as I've been doing for the last nine months. Oh, man. He is just the, the man of the PSA right now. So sounds like it should be a clean Christmas then. Or is it just you and your... You and your fam, you and your your close family members. I think so. Yeah, we're we're staying here in Denver, so we'll be we'll be around if anyone is looking for us. All right, there we go. How about you, Probably Zach? Where, where are you going? Um, I will be in Winter Park. I'll be skiing in Winter Park, which should he be nice. Skis when he wants, Zachary Petzak. He skis. True, when it's true. Uh, another sip of the tea, but um, yeah, with with the. The holidays coming up, it should be a nice time. But a lot of matches, a lot of matches coming up too. Are you yep. what? Yeah, you know, are you are you going to be sneaking in your uh, being able to spectate matches during during family time? I mean, I'm sure I'm going to be able to do that, right? It's 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 an important time of the year for football, just as it is for families. Zach. Wow, there we go. I like that. You've laid out your priorities on a horizontal plane. That's right, equal like family and football, right there. <laughs> Wales in that order uh, would, would as, complete that sentence. As Bill Shankly once said, football is not a matter of life or death, Zach. It's far more important than that. That's a good one. That is one of the better, one of the best Bill Shankly quotes. Uh, so from there, Adam, I, I say we we can kind of dive into topics for today. We're going to be we're going to be looking at twelve games in, eleven games in, thirteen games in, three different uh, match amounts played by various teams in the Premier League right now. We're going to be looking at the performances of most of those clubs and not just last weekend, but kind of over the course of the whole season, I would say, giving a quick assessment of that. We'll, of course, go over the last couple of matches as well as the knockout stage as it appears in the Europa League and the Champions League. And then we will, of course, dig into with the two things that we have done on every single podcast we've ever recorded, Armchair Pundits and 10 and 90 get to in it. Maybe not armchair pundits, but 1090 has been on every episode we've ever done. So, um, they're both, they're both both staples of the false nines though. You're right, Zach. It's a true statement. So, uh, going into it then, Adam, some important, important things happened over the weekend. The most important, obviously to everybody who spectates the Premier League, two wins in a row, Newcastle United, we're rocking right now. It's a Steve Bruce masterclass, Zach. Two wins in a row. It's about to be three, probably even four. I doubt it. But anyway, what a start. What a start to this game. We were ahead in 19 seconds. I could not believe my eyes. I almost spat my morning tea out watching it. Big Joe with the assist pulls it over to Miggy. 19 seconds in, puts it past the helpless Johnston for 1-0 to the tune. Lots of chances to extend the lead in the game, but we couldn't put it to get bed in the first half, and that was a large part of the story for this game, wasn't it, Zach? It was. As you mentioned, you know, a, a dream start for Newcastle, and from, from that short 19-minute window, it did feel like we kind of saw how the game was going to play out in you know just a, a few seconds, expecting a lot of that kind of quick and rapid attacking combination play between 
Callum Wilson, Joe Linton, and Miggy. Um, and yet, it seemed to not really go down the path you'd expect. I feel like we were pretty we were pretty pedestrian most of that match. I think that's a fairly fair statement, Adam. Yeah, pedestrian, I think, is fair. I think, you know, we were very much changed side. Offensively, I thought we had, um, really, aside from Alan St. Maximum, we had most of our attacking players present for that game. But at the back, it was very much to change lineup for Newcastle. We had Isaac Hayden playing a makeshift center back because either everybody's injured or has COVID. Um, so he came in, and I thought he did a great job at the center of defense. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I think that he has been that kind of Swiss army knife of a player this season, just being able to really fit into whatever role is needed on that day. Um, I think that he's been one of our most important players for sure. Uh, but you're right, going forward, it, it was Wilson, it was Joe Linton, it was Miggy, uh, it, pretty much all the normal cast of characters besides St. Maximin were in there uh, and just a, a weird first half to see that score that early and then not really threaten for the rest of it. Now, Second half comes around, and West Brom certainly got a, a talking to from Slavon Bilic, it seemed like, at halftime. Yeah, they did, and they opened the second half much the stronger team. Around the 51st minute, we got a cross in um, off the left-hand side, and it was met with a sweet finish from, I, I'll be honest, I didn't know this guy before the game, Darnell Furlong, though. Household name now after that strike, Zach. That was a really, really nice hit. I do think that you have to be fairly critical of Jamal Lewis on that play, just seemingly leaning. It, it, you couldn't really tell if he was waiting for it and kind of ball watching, or at a point it almost looked like he leaned back a bit too far and maybe lost his balance. But yeah, Furlong, credit to him, really aggressive, hit it with the outside of his boot and and kind of set the tone for the second half there. Um I, I wasn't too confident we were going to get three points out of this one come, I would say, the 75th, 76th minute, though. No, it looked like, you know, we were we were strolling towards a draw here. It was starting to peter out a little bit. And then came the substitutes. So on comes Dwight Gale. On comes Jacob Murphy, both former West Brom players from a loan standpoint, playing against their old team. And it's that combination that ultimately sets up the winner. So, so I ask you this fantastic goal from from Dwight Gale off the Murphy cross but how much credit do we need to give Steve Bruce for this substitution and subsequent three points earned it's tough because you don't want to have that sort of double standard of when a manager does not make substitutions and the team loses and it seems as though the substitutions were fairly obvious to the naked eye you know we often blame the manager there but you you don't want to then transversely not give credit when the substitutions hit and that's kind of how I felt about this one was I, I will say there there weren't too many other substitutions that were really available considering what we needed in terms of pace and attacking play just based on who was injured. But you're right, Bruce made the right substitutions. It was a, a just a fantastic goal. That, that kind of gorgeous swinging, I, I would say, Kevin De Bruyne, Andy Robertson-esque cross from so deep near midfield. And then, as you said, mentioned, a fantastic header from Gale. Yep. Really one of those perfect ones that kind of went in off the underside of the crossbar and just looked so good going in. So after that point, you know, f fairly comfortable, I would say, um, through the end of the game for Newcastle. Not too many chances after that. And we pick up the 2-1 the win. So that's us up to 17 points from 11 games, Zach. We are officially six points off of fourth place. 
and nine points off of 18th. So closer to the top four than we are the relegation zone. Our next games are Leeds away. That's tomorrow night. We're recording this on Tuesday night. So tomorrow night, Leeds away, Fulham at home, and Brentford away. Now, we said that this run-in was going to be a really important one to Christmas because we have very winnable games. Two wins from two in those games. How do you see us faring in the next three, Zach? It's, I think, going to largely depend on the health of the side as a whole. Um, with those three matches all coming in the span of, what, two weeks, it, it is going to be a pretty big test on, you know, can players get back to health? Obviously, players who, who were part of that COVID outbreak don't really have an option as to getting back to health quicker. It's, it's more kind of how long has it been for them. But I, I think you have to say four points from six would be a pretty, I think, reasonable estimate, if not more. But it is a question of who can get back. We know that Newcastle does have a history of kind of playing down to these more defensive-minded bottom-of-the-table sides. So it's going to be a test of Bruce. It's going to be the test of the players. But I, I think it all really comes down to who is fit, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, you look at the bottom four right now. It's Burnley in 17th, Fulham in 18th, West Brom in 19th, Sheffield United in 20th. We've already beaten Burnley. We've already beaten West Brom. We've got Fulham coming up um, this this coming weekend. So really, really important that we're actually winning those games around the teams that we could potentially be there in a relegation dogfight come the end of the season. So I think Leeds will be fine. These Leeds will be up there, but Fulham's the one I'm earmarking as a must win for us um, relegation six pointer, even this early on in the season, a third of the way through. That's true. Especially with Fulham getting a bit of uh, momentum going into that match. They've been playing right. certainly better at the, than at the beginning of the season when ultimately it was pretty much an entirely new team. They made a almost record number of transfers for their starting 11 in the transfer window. So it is impressive how they're putting things together. Brentford in the cup, I think largely is, is, down to how those last two matches went, who is healthy, who maybe got injured in those two matches. Uh, and then I think that will dictate how strong of a side we um, are able to field against Brentford because Brentford not too much lower than Newcastle in the hierarchy of uh, English football. Yep, exactly. It'll be interesting to see when Alan St. Maximin comes back in, whether or not this is truly an injury, COVID, or whether he really truly did have a, a fallout with Bruce. Uh, I, I'm interested to see as to how and when he's integrated back into the site. Sure, sure. I I mean, no no concrete evidence has really pointed to the issue with Bruce, but we will see, right? We, we have had no information on what has gone on there. But Newcastle, again, coming up against Leeds tomorrow. It'll be probably day of when you hear this podcast. Speaking of Leeds, a hard-fought match, I would say, on Friday, but ultimately West Ham United going up to fifth in the table just were a bit too strong uh, for the Midland side. Yeah, they were. And Thomas Suchek, again, I think was a difference maker for the Hammers. He's gone successive games with a goal for them now. And form-wise, West Ham, four wins in five for the Hammers and one loss, 12 points from 15. They're in really, really good form right now, right now Zach. They're looking fantastic. I agree that Suchek is probably the the top guy I would mark right now. But um, the offense, even without a you know a, a striker that is scoring every single game, they have so much wing play. They have so much uh, kind of I would say gumption from midfield. Uh, Declan Rice getting forward. Suchek. You have Fornals, who I think has been quite impressive this season. Uh, Mikel Artonio, or uh, if need be, you have the German coming in Alaire. So there's always going to be people in and around the box and. I, I would say in a way West Ham kind of shows you what Newcastle 
could be, maybe not as high in the table, but in terms of style with the type of teams that we both have. Yep, exactly. Yes. West Ham, very successful in the air in that game, despite Leeds having 64% of the possession. That's been a theme all season. And I think that will actually suit Newcastle as we go into that game tomorrow, because we really like to sit back and play on the counterattack. Leeds are going to do that, right? They're going to dominate possession and they're going to take it to us. So hopefully we'll have some luck on the, on the counterattack in that game. Uh, back to the Leeds West Ham game, though, um, it started off with a Patrick Bamford missed penalty. And this is one of the points, talking points of the game I wanted to, to harp on. He missed his penalty. However, Fabianski jumped early off his line. VAR caught it, reviewed it, and basically had the the penalty kick retaken and Klitsch scored the, uh, the penalty. Interesting to see how that's being used from a VAR standpoint right now, the retaking of the penalty for jumping off the line. That used to be a lot of gamesmanship from goalkeepers back in the day, but no space for it in the game right now, I guess. It does appear so, for sure. I think that that's one of the, I would say, least spoken about aspects of VAR because you you see it called at the least. But ultimately, it comes down to the fact that when you when you really kind of consider the rules that have been affected by VAR, I would say that a goalkeeper jumping off his line is one of the easiest to determine if it happened or if it didn't happen. You know, with offside, a lot of people say if somebody's hand is offside and it's clearly not part of the play, that shouldn't necessarily count as an offside. But with a goalie jumping off the line, it's it's extremely, extremely objective which one it is, kind of like a ball crossing the line. So I don't particularly have an issue with that being something that's called now every time it happens. It is the rule. It'd be interesting to see how that's applied in a penalty shootout scenario. Will we see start seeing penalty kicks retaken in a shootout if they jump early? Ooh, that's a that's a good question. You're right, because then then it sets the precedent that it would be done at any penalty, and that's a lot high, more high pressure of a situation. Yeah, imagine you're in a you know you're in sudden death penalty kicks, trying to decide who goes through to a final of a major tournament, for for example, and then all of a sudden last penalty gets taken, it's saved, but wait, no, actually you jumped early, retake it, and you're and you're still on the way, right? It's just scenarios like that I think are going to make it really tricky to enforce it. Yeah, we'll have to see how that plays out. I didn't really think about that, but that's a really good point that that would change the complexity of a game and and might be almost overdone in those situations. So Leeds dropping uh, their, what is it, third match of the last five games, I believe. And they, they are sliding right now. Uh, on, on the other side of that, a team that wears fairly similar colors and we're expected to end the season in a similar place this year. Villa getting a massive win at the very, very death of it uh, against Wolves in the West Midlands Derby. Yeah, they did. They uh, they got a 94th minute winner from the spot. McGinniesta going down for the penalty, um, and that was routinely put away by El Ghazi. Um, and it was interesting because before that, um, Villa were down to 10 men about the 84th minute. And then after the goal in the 94th, Wolves lost Giamutinho for a second yellow card. So it lived up to the hype of being a kind of dirty, you know, get stuck in West Midlands derby where both teams didn't quite like each other. Would have been only thing that would have made it better would have been some fans there. That's true. I think that's a good point that this is pretty much all you could ask for in terms of the, the, the history that this type of game has. So it did play up to expectation for sure. It did. And then I just want to touch on with, uh, with wolves. Um, wolves actually played today and beat 
um, and beat Chelsea 2-1. But in our last two games, zero goals in two games. So it left us scratching our heads as to where the goals might come from, given that Raul Jimenez is not back until February from a fractured skull surgery. Um, but seemed to be fine today. Put two in with Pedro Neto. Um, and then the first half with Daniel Podence today. So Wolves, thankfully, starting to score some goals now, Zach. They are back to the the very heavily emphasizing attack ways that we've kind of got to know them for in the last three seasons with them being back in the Premier League, three or four seasons now. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> I would say the game of the weekend, though, everybody was looking forward to was the Manchester Derby. Uh, I think that was the one that a lot of bookies had down as maybe a three-goal, four-goal affair. And, uh, I mean, shocking, shocking in terms of just how that played out. It was It was kind of a bizarre game to watch. Yeah, it was. Um, I don't think anybody was expecting the nil-nil, but we've had that a few times this season now in some of these big games, right, where we've seen seen the nil-nils kind of play Chelsea out. Tottenham. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly the game I was thinking of. And uh, for me, this game came off the back of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer falling out of the Champions League with Manchester United the week prior, leaking goals like crazy in the first half of every single game coming up to this. He had a defensive point to make, and I thought he actually did pretty well with it, right? He he compromised a lot on the attacking side to try and make sure it was airtight at the back. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened, right? We saw a drab game as a result. Mm-hmm. If they needed a result in this one, which they did, this was, you're right, it wasn't an entertaining, but it was ultimately an effective way of getting that. From the Manchester City side, though, I think it does touch upon this point that we're seeing so often now. Uh, you just mentioned the Wolves victory over uh, Chelsea today, but I, I think you also have to kind of on the other side of that point out uh, Manchester City now zero or one goal in two matches. The second one, the one today against West Brom, the leakiest defense in the Premier League. Is there an issue with attacking play at Manchester City? Yep, I think there absolutely is. And we've talked about this quite a bit, right? When Sergio Aguero is not on the field, it just doesn't have the same feel about it. It just doesn't feel like there's the same potency and threat in attack. You know, when we had David Silva in the team last year, when we had Raheem Sterling and Aguero up front a couple years ago when they're really at their peak for me, um, Sterling obviously has many years ago, but as, as a strike partnership, you know, those those two up front have been have been great in the past. I just don't see it this year. We've said Gabe Jesus is not the answer, right? No, no matter how how much promise he shows, I think they have to be in the market to strengthen in January. Right now, Zach, I, I mentioned this stat before the pod. Manchester City in 12 games have scored 18 goals. That is the same as Crystal Palace. It's insane. It really is an insane thing to look at. I agree that shopping for a striker in January, if not, you know, in the summer as well, um, is of utmost importance to them. It's just not what you'd expect out of, out of Manchester City. Almost the entire decade of, of the 2010s, they were one of the highest scoring teams in the Premier League. So at this point, it's you, you, it's tough to imagine them playing that way. Um, but there there is an issue there. Uh, I Yeah, I don't know. Do you think it's just a striker problem or do you think anything more of the attack needs to be beefed up? I think I think Silva's probably been the biggest loss of all for Manchester City. We said a couple of seasons ago that they were devoid of leadership after company left, and I think that's true. 
But I think even bigger for them is the presence of Silva, both on the team sheet and as a presence of the dressing room. I don't think they have that natural kind of creativity or I don't feel like that spark is going to be there. Somebody that can really impose themselves or inject their pace on the game, right? We've talked about Ferran Torres, who I think is a, is a great player, but he's not up to the standard in the Premier League yet. Hasn't really got with the pace of the game. So uh, I, I'm worried specifically about the creativity in midfield and the finishing up top. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point. I think that it it does kind of come back to that leadership, that idea that there were a handful of players who had been at Manchester City for six, eight years. So uh, when when you lose all of those, there is this almost like rollover with players, and it doesn't seem like it's really coming yet. You'd maybe think Phil Foden will assume that role at some point. He kind of seems to have that personality, uh, but certainly not really at that place yet. And besides him, who else is there that has really – you know, been at the club for a while or is um, is somebody who you could see with that personality. Because a guy like Kevin De Bruyne just doesn't, like, it's not really a, a fault of his, but he's just not that type of personality who would lead a team. Yeah, I was I was going to be critical of De Bruyne and say he hasn't done as much this season. He scored two goals and got six assists, actually. So I, th- I feel like he's not up to the lofty standards of last year yet, but I feel like he's certainly pulling his weight in the team. And I, and I just want to kind of close with one, th- one final thought on Manchester city. You know, they were, they were kind of chastised last season for having a very leaky defense, especially when Laporte was out in the first half of last season, this season, they have the second best defense in the league, only 12 goals shipped in 12 games. The Nathan Ake signing, um, they've really kind of, Tightened, the, tightened it up there as well. Ruben Diaz at the back. I feel like they figured out the defensive part. It's very similar to Arsenal, who we'll get to later, where last season you know, they were leaky at the back and they were scoring goals for fun, and it's flipped now for both those teams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's completely true. I mean, Arsenal looking like they're in, they're, they have some problems going on, uh, I would say, is a pretty safe statement to make. Um, but, okay, so, so going from Manchester City, there was one more game on Saturday, and that was the Everton-Chelsea match. Again, a game that you'd think be a bit higher scoring, I would think, first of all. And I was expecting goals out of this one. Yeah, in general, I think it was a fairly disappointing Saturday for, for on the goals front, right? I think we mm-hmm. had four goals in uh was that four goals in four games so not a lot to watch and obviously everybody was tuning in for the cracker that was newcastle versus west brom um but everton back to winning ways um and i think a really important one for them setting the scene here this is ancelotti um with a team like everton who historically at least in the last 20 30 years or so haven't really achieved much flattered to deceive somewhat comes back, manages that team, and takes on the pretender who he managed as a player when he was at Chelsea, Frank Lampard, with all of the world at his feet, the disposal, the history of Chelsea Football Club. And he thought, I wonder if the master will <laughs> will teach the student. And that's exactly what happened mm-hmm. in this one. That's a good way of putting it. I, yeah, you, you kind of overlook that that subplot almost, that, uh, that he was a player, Frank Lampard was a player under... Carlo Angelotti. So it was that grasshopper sente type feel, but big, yeah, it was a big win for Everton. Gilvie Sigurdsson getting the the winning goal, the only goal in a, in a one nil match. Um, and it, again, the, you know, Toffee started off so, so hot and then kind of cooled down over the course of their last four, three, four games. And now you know, this, maybe, maybe this is a sign that they are actually another team that could be contending for a top six place. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think when I was really kind of doing some analysis on this game, one of the things I read about the game, I didn't see this one, just the goals, was that this was a very mature and disciplined performance from Everton. I thought those were two great words to describe how I think Ancelotti is trying to impress his style onto that Everton team. Mature and disciplined because they've got a lot of young players in that team and they've got players that they're trying to gel together the honeymoon period's kind of over now for James Rodriguez and Allen and the team now we're starting to see what Everton are really all about Chelsea Chelsea had 72% possession in this team and I think a lot of that was down to the fact that Everton scored fairly early um, but they couldn't find a way through only three shots on target so credit where it's due to Everton they started well slipped off a little bit but they're they're heading in the right direction now again. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a good way of putting it, Adam. Uh, all right. So those were the Saturday fixtures and the Friday fixture uh, with Newcastle getting the huge victory. Um, we'll, we'll do a quick commercial break and then hop back in, go over Sunday, and then dig into some of the more European-related things coming up soon. Wonderful. So... After that commercial break, we are back. Uh, Sunday fixtures kicking off in the early morning here in Denver, Colorado. I I would say, Adam, the result uh, that I was most impressed upon, or I'd say impressed by uh, in terms of a, you could say, underdog perspective was Crystal Palace getting a 1-1 draw against Tottenham Hotspur. I thought Palace was excellent in this game. Yeah, it was it was great to see as well because it was uh, quite a few derbies this weekend. We had uh, the Manchester derby, we had the West Midlands derby, and this London derby as well with with Spurs at Palace. So um, I don't know if you heard the news earlier this week that they've actually moved London from Tier 2 to Tier 3 now so that having fans in the stand was short-lived. But the Palace fans got to really, really enjoy Jeffrey Schlupp scoring the equalizer late on in this one, didn't they? Mm -hmm. It did seem almost like it had the energy of a packed house just because we've, you know, gone so long now without having uh, a match involving that level of of fans, Um, even in even in Germany, a a country that was almost back to full capacity a few months ago. Um, But yeah, big, big win for Crystal Palace. I think that Zaha and SK are a pretty, pretty say pretty much top three to top five most exciting duos right now in terms of just watching them go forward those two players are really running an exciting attack for palace yeah so you you said a, a win but it was actually a one one draw in that game so kane took the lead for spurs in the first half and then schlepp getting the point uh, to spurs i really feel like they need to be winning these games zach like if they want to be pretenders to the title if they want to be you know really considered in and amongst the best teams in the league these are the games that they have to win. And it dawned on me when I watched this one that I feel almost as though Spurs, bear with me here with this analogy, Spurs are like Rafa Benitez's Newcastle with better players. They like to play on the counterattack. They like to be strong defensively and absorb a lot of pressure. And they play well against the kind of higher teams in the league and put up results against the top six, right? But then they play against lesser teams and they have more possession and they struggle to break down teams. And I think that was something that happened for Rafa Benitez at Newcastle. He tended to look really, really good in those games and and really kind of have be in in for the fight with the top six, but then struggled against some of the lower teams. Do you see a similar theme here for Spurs? 
I I do I do I I see what you're saying. I think that the the difference between uh, Rafa Benitez's Newcastle and Jose Mourinho's Spurs is a pretty big you know gulf in quality. Uh, but I I see where you're saying where it's a similar mindset. I agree. Spurs need to be getting that win. They got lucky that every other top team, every other team in the top five dropped points. So that was huge for them to, you know, have this maybe be a bit of a wash, but you're right. They, it can't be indicative of performances they're going to put in the rest of the season if they want to be a title contender. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, this was akin to the um, Europa League game that Spurs had earlier on in the season where Jose Mourinho was super fired up after them dropping points against some no-name club that didn't make it out of the group stage in the Europa League, right? He, he yeah. knows how to get a reaction from his players. Um, wh- one last thought on this game. Did you notice a little cameo again for Deli Alley in the team? I did, yeah. I think that it was it was interesting to get a Deli Alley sighting. It almost seems like at this point because <laughs> he he he's getting he's guy he's like on the path to become an Ozil in terms of just how not related to the club he seems to be. Um, but did see him come back on. We'll see if they're just maybe trying to. I feel like they they might be trying to just get him some attention come January and then try to sell him there. See, I think it's the exact opposite. I think that this is. This is very similar to the Ndombele situation where Ndombele was outcast from the team, training in the park with Jose Mourinho, uh, dropped from the team for a while. Team starts to become successful. He gets the bit between his teeth, starts to train harder and really kind of um, show show his worth. And now he's a regular starter in the team. Here's my prediction. Deli Alley is a name on the starting sheet of Tottenham by the end of the season and isn't going anywhere. Interesting. Oh, I like that theory. I like that theory a lot. I mean, Jose Mourinho playing mind games. He's known to play mind games, and that would be something he would definitely be uh, kind of almost likely to do. I like that. I like that take. Break him down and bring build him back up again in his own Mourinho way, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Uh, excuse me earlier. Palace got a point out of this match, so it was a 1-1 draw. Uh, great great game in terms of entertainment. I thought Gaeta was great in goal for Palace. I thought that the attack looked good, and yeah, uh, a point that, that the uh, the Crystal Palace side was worth. Yeah, it was a rare mistake from, um, from oh my word, Spurs keeper, Larice. Name is escaping me now. A rare mistake from him, and after the game, uh, he was asked if he would criticize Larice and um, Jose Mourinho's response was he's the best goalkeeper in the world. I would never criticize him. Wow. That's a yeah. heavy statement. I like that. I like that. Not heavy, but more so that like, yeah, he, he is, he is sticking to his man there. I like that. I, I, I appreciate that. Top class. I like, I, I like the way he reacted to that. And I like Larice as well. I think he's a great goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's cool. I didn't see that one. Um, all right. What, what was your other, what, what match with the last three in Sunday do you think were the most, was the most entertaining for you? Um, I guess it depends. <laughs> it depends how you would define entertaining surprise results or quality football and goals. Like what are you, what are you looking for here? Is that, Hmm. I don't know. It's, a, it's up to you. I'm asking you what, what, what was your, what was your other favorite match of the day? All right. I would say, I would say Leicester against Brighton was a very entertaining one because I was expecting this to be a tighter game and Leicester just put them to the sword in the first half. I know you're a big Leicester fan. For me, James Madison is back to his best. He's Mm -hmm. playing well. And when James Madison ticks, so do Leicester. I agree. I think that James Madison, 
You'd say about a season ago, at the at the beginning of last season, people were saying that he was going to be, you know, right there amongst the best center attacking midfielders, and he did kind of fall off for a little bit. He had, didn't he? He, I think he had a minor injury earlier this year, and then uh, now is 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 looking back to form. His first goal, he had two in that one in this match, and his first goal was just gorgeous, gorgeous finish. Yeah, that left-footed curler to make it 3-0 into the top corner, the top left-hand corner was a beauty. He he basically just made fun of that that defense for Brighton as he was dancing around and just trying to shape onto his left foot, got half a yard and curled it into the top corner. It was, it was beautiful. Um stats on this game, Brighton has now failed to beat Leicester in 7 attempts since returning to the Premier League in 2017. So as much as Brighton are Newcastle's bogey team, <laughs> Leicester mm-hmm. are Brighton's bogey team here. Interesting. Yep, they have a couple of really important games coming up next. They got Fulham and Sheffield United, so nineteenth, sorry, eighteenth and twentieth up next for for Brighton. So real crunch time, I think now for Graham Potter needs to be targeting six points in those. I agree. I think I think the Fulham one will be interesting. I think Sheffield United is. <laughs> you can't expect anything out of them at all. Uh, maybe maybe that's a another good one to touch upon. Uh, just the the plight of Sheffield United, as as you said, Southampton getting that nice win over them, but um, kind of going back to Sheffield United, it is they are so adrift right now. Truly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 3-0 loss at Southampton um, on Sunday was was not pretty. Uh, it, it's interesting, Wilder, after the game, he's he's in a lot of trouble right now. I think that's, that's clear for all to see, right? Chris Wilder is under immense pressure. He said after the game, Southampton are the best side that he has faced all season. Now, Sheffield United have played some teams this season, Zach. Does that surprise you that he's adding such superlatives for a Southampton team at present? I don't know. I don't really know if I believe it that much or if it's just some weird kind of mind game. He's not mind game, but you know, some sort of like PR move he's trying to make uh, to, to maybe mask over how bad Sheffield United has been. That is an interesting quote there. I didn't see that one. Um, Sheffield United looking, looking pretty awful. Um, all right. Well, do we have any matches left for Sunday? Fulham, Fulham uh, got that really unexpected point against Liverpool. This was a, this was a pretty for a Liverpool game. This was a pretty boring one, I would almost say. Like not not a lot went on between the two goals. Yeah, I heard somebody make an analogy of that the Liverpool game against Fulham was very indicative of the Liverpool game against Watford last season when they lost their first game. It just felt like they weren't quite at the races in that one. And Fulham could have been a couple goals up in this one. Bobby Reed actually with a beautiful goal to open the scoring in the first half. Um, And then we had the, of course, decision going the way of Liverpool this time on the penalty kick. So Klopp was happy with VAR on this occasion. Um, And they leveled it up with a solid penalty. So you weren't expecting Fulham to get any points from this one. A good point for them. Two points dropped for Liverpool, though. Keeps Spurs at the top of the league, Zach. It's true. And it's it's the exact same thing that we were saying about Spurs is that they they it was not good that they dropped this match. And it was a game they should be winning if they're going to win the title. But uh, exact same result for Liverpool kind of left them off the hook. I will say I was impressed by Fulham being able to hold on to that, just getting anything from that match. So, you know team does seem to be gelling a bit now. Um, and I think Scotty Parker is somebody that not really, we, I don't think we really expected anything out of him in particular, but he's done a good job bringing that team together. 
Yeah, he has. They, they seem to be playing a little bit better football. I think we're actually Newcastle are playing them at a bad time. Uh, yeah. I wish we could kind of played them a little bit earlier in the season. And that game's upcoming for them. They'll be full of confidence when they go into it. And then Liverpool, from an upcoming game standpoint, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday night. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday, I hope you're looking forward to Liverpool versus Spurs at Anfield. That's going to be a beautiful game today. I'm very exciting. I'm very excited uh, for that match. I think that that one, we might see both teams bounce back into their scoring ways. That's something something I, I'm kind of predicting here. I think this game did show, the last thing I'll say on Liverpool, this game did show, though, how their attack might have to be a bit different without Diego Jota, who it's a recent report saying that he'll be out for about two months. So it, it was just indicative of how much he has had an impact on that team, and they might kind of have to re recalibrate a bit now without him. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, a, a team without Jota still has Mane, Salah, and Firmino up front. So they're they're not short on attacking options, let's say. Um, but, sure. but you're right. I mean, he's definitely added something since he's come in from Wolves. You know, that goal-scoring record, I think scoring in his first four games, and then he had the game where he didn't didn't score to make it the record of five. Great player, top, top class, and certainly brings a lot of quality to the team. Um, to close out, Liverpool Spurs... Any predictions for that game? Any any score lines you'd like to, to throw out there for that one? Hmm. I think a two-one victory or a two-two draw are both score lines I could see occurring in this in this match. For the two-one victory, are you saying that would be for Liverpool or are you saying that would be for Spurs? I think it could go either way. That's why I'm not going to specify on who I think that means. I think Spurs grind out a one-nil win in this game. Best defensive record in the Premier League. And I think Youngman Son gets the winner in late on in the game. That's my prediction. I would love that. I love anything Youngman Son related. <laughs> All right. So over to the final game on Sunday, and perhaps the biggest shock of the weekend, I might say, Arsenal Football Club lose one nil at home to lowly Burnley. This is a new low for Arsenal, right? I mean, literally since the Premier League began. A third of the way through the season in 15th place. We've got all the time in the world for Mikel Arteta, but I mean, how, how long more can this go on without them feeling like a change is necessary? Do you, do you think Arteta is the problem there? Is that what you're saying? I don't think he's the problem at all, but he's, there's, only, there's only so much patience and leeway that I think the Arsenal fans and the Arsenal board will have with him given that they're down in in 15th place they have southampton everton man city and chelsea up next those are their next four games southampton who are probably one of the form teams of the premier league and shock teams everton city and chelsea that's arsenal's next four games and they just lost at home to burnley like they could be literally 16 games into the season and still have 13 points after those games would be that's that's relegation pace you have to say it like i think it's it's almost like taboo right now to even say out loud that they could be in a relegation battle but i think there's no other way to really kind of sum it up yeah it's it's really really bad right now what 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 do you put the problem down to you asked me if i thought arteta was the problem i don't in a lot of ways i think there are there are problems on the player side of things but, but what do you accredit this to zach i think that there's no real there's no real identity that this club has. Like there's the, I don't think any of the players are anything close to a leader on this side. I, th I think 
you you have to talk about the Jaka incident in that game, getting sent off for grabbing the throat uh, of Ashley Westwood, I believe it was. And like you know, you can't be putting up with that type of thing. And there there doesn't seem to be any sort of leadership emerging at Arsenal right now between players. Yep, I think it's a great point. Xhaka was very disappointing in this game, both from a playing standpoint before he got sent off and obviously for the questionable judgment and the way that he got ejected from the game. So, oh, new, new, low, new low for Arsenal right now. This is this is not good. I, I have a lot of friends that are Arsenal fans and they're, they're all calling for the same thing, Arteta to be gone. It, it's It's quite interesting as a Newcastle fan to see a giant like Arsenal in this position in the league and how the fans are reacting to it, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. Take our take, so. take Banger back in a heartbeat, probably at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it kind of makes you ask the question: like, was was Wenger ever an issue? Was Unai Emery ever the issue? Like, it, it makes you wonder how kind of deeply seated this player, you know, almost like ambivalence or, or just the players not really showing up i think mentally you wonder how far this has gone back but arsenal like you said those next five matches southampton everton city chelsea or next four matches i mean maybe four five points would be the best that you're going to expect out of that i don't i don't see them winning more than one of those matches yeah it's going to be going to be really tough for them. Um, going to make for fascinating viewing over the festive period, though, to watch how this Arsenal situation plays out. Pivoting over to Burnley, credit to them. What a massive win for Burnley. Took them out of the relegation zone. One loss in five, seven points from 12, and they're up to 17th. Sean Dyche always finds a way, doesn't he, Zach? He does. He is... He is turning into a, a right-on miracle worker at Burnley. It it makes you wonder though, like how how long they, how long they're willing to put up with kind of like avoiding relegation. Remember, it was only three seasons ago that they had a a top eight finish, and now it seems as though it is a perpetual fight to stay in the Premier League. I wonder if, if fans kind of realize that that might be more a front office issue, or if I wonder if that actually will catch up to Sean uh, at any point. Yeah, I, I, I'd be curious to see if he actually loses patience with the board, the lack of investment, and walks before he's pushed. Um, for, for me, I think he's somebody that would like to ply his trade at another team and see if he could replicate the success. I think he's you know, he's fairly young as a manager. He's, he's definitely got a lot of career left in him. But, I mean, it, it's clear that the ambition of Burnley doesn't match the ambition of Dyche. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think it'll be, yeah, it'll it'll kind of just be interesting to see how the rest of their season plays out, whether it's relegation or it's survival and then what happens in the summer. But Burnley has turned into, you're right, a team that does seem to be kind of tipping or, or on the on the, almost on like the, the tipping point at all times at this point. Yep, that's right. So that wraps up our, our weekend games. Um, as we mentioned, Recording this on Tuesday night, there were two games today. Chelsea losing 2-1 at Wolves and Manchester City dropping points at home to West Brom 1-1. <laughs> um, so that, that kind of wraps up our games from the last seven days. Uh, to, to kind of round out our, our thoughts on the weekend, we'll, we'll go to top scores and we'll take a quick commercial break here. Dominic Calvert-Lewin still leads the league with 11 goals. Youngman Son, Mo Salah, and Jamie Vardy with 10 goals for the season, and Harry Kane with nine. So two Spurs players in those top five players from a goal-scoring standpoint now. Tottenham, Tottenham looking pretty good right now, Zach. 
Adam are looking pretty good. It's been it's been really really cool to watch the return of Jose Mourinho and his reestablishment of himself in the Premier League. I'd say that's just kind of my last point there, but has been enter a few entertaining subplots so far. For sure. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. Uh, wrapping up uh, the Premier League there, we are looking now at Europe and uh, maybe just a quick run through uh, how we got to uh, the, the point that we're at with the Champions League and Europa League. So both Champions League and Europa League now in the knockout stages. Um, the fixtures just coming out for the Champions League today. But uh, any anything you want to kind of touch on before we jump into covering the fixtures? Yeah, I think um, the big talking point from last week was the PSG versus Istanbul game in the Champions League. Final game in the group stages, about 15 minutes in, there's alleged racist comments from an official, a Romanian fourth official in the game. And both sets of players walk off the pitch and refuse mm -hmm. to continue. An alleged racial slur used against the assistant manager for the Istanbul team that was overheard by former Newcastle player Demba Ba, who was also visibly upset by the comment. And both teams, as a result, leave the field, refuse to come back, and basically the game is abandoned until the following day. Zach, for me, this was, this was a historic moment. In, in the fight against racial inequality and injustice in, in, from a football standpoint and really on, on a world level as well. Yeah, you'd, you'd say so. You'd say it's, it has the potential of being that, that historic. Yep, absolutely. I think this was, it's precedent setting for me, right? I think the fact that it's not just, well, a couple of things. I think it's one, one team has, you know, been, been slighted here and both teams have reacted in the same way, right? You've got players, no disrespect to Istanbul, but nowhere near the caliber of team of a PSG. You've got Neymar and you've got Mbappe, who are two massive players on a world football stage, who are also joining in that to combat racism, to walk off, off the field because they feel like it was completely unacceptable. And they're right. This is an official. These are people who are supposed to be governing the game, who are supposed to be the ones that you go to as a player, to impose the the laws of the game, not the people that you should be looking at who are, you know, making questionable um, comments and just slurs on the on the sideline. For me, I thought it was incredibly done by both sets of players. I think they did absolutely the right thing, um, and they stood up to racism in a way that I haven't seen happen on the football field before. That's a well well said, Adam. I, I think that it was um, hopefully a monumental moment in what we look, would ideally look back on as a, a turning point, a watershed moment for the uh, for the way the European football is run. Now, yeah. besides that, though, we, we now do know the draws. So PSG of those two teams going forward, Istanbul, uh, we will give a shout out to the fact that they beat Manchester United with a goal from Dembaba earlier in the tournament. So a good showing from them. But Barcelona, PSG, speaking of PSG, probably the, the most marquee matchup of the round of 16 fixtures. Yeah, so PSG, obviously, um, I think going into this game as favorites, um, obviously being the 
runners up in the Champions League last year, making the final and Barcelona and seemingly in free fall right now in seventh place in, in La Liga. But on paper, this is going to be a fantastic game. I think it's the pick of the bunch in terms of the, the ties in the last 16. Um, I think it'll be great. Neymar obviously playing, going back to uh, going back to the new camp to, to play at Barcelona again. That's going to be, I think, another kind of nice subplot to this game. Mm-hmm. That and the fact that he has made it very, very public that he is trying to recruit Lionel Messi to go to uh, to go to Paris after this season. Yep, it's, it was a long time, a uh, long time ago, but a couple of seasons ago that we were talking about Neymar going back to Barcelona. My how the tables have turned now. So it's very, very different trying to poach him back over to uh, to PSG, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of the reversal of what you might expect to be to be going on. But Barcelona PSG, a, a I'd say a top match. Um, other ones that I would pick out as some of the ones I'm looking forward to the most. I think Leipzig Liverpool is going to be a really really good match. I think that the way both of those teams attack uh, is going to make for a very exciting one. Yeah, so Leipzig are joint top in the Bundesliga right now and obviously just eliminated Manchester United from the competition. So um, that's going to be a really fantastic one to watch. And it's the sort of banana skin match that you would think um, Liverpool might slip up in, similar to the Atletico Madrid one from last season. Mm-hmm. So be fascinated to see that how that pans out. I agree. I think that this will be a match that will kind of uh, dictate, you know, not dictate anything, but it, it could be a bit of a trap game for, for Liverpool. I think Leipzig, yeah, Leipzig have not really gotten any weaker uh, losing Timo Werner this year, which I think is one of the most impressive things to go on outside of England in the England or in just European football as a whole. Yep. Speaking of Timo Werner, Chelsea are going to be playing Atletico in the next round. We already mentioned Liverpool lost to Atletico last season. So um, I think this will be a great contrast of styles. Chelsea, very offensive, very attacking, forward-thinking players, not as tight at the back. And then Atletico, just with that really rock-solid, iron-clad defense under Simeone, uh, it's going to be a really, really good, fun contrast of styles to watch, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially now with Atletico and Luis Suarez, Luis Suarez at the at the helm, so you could probably make some some connection to a game or two he's had against Chelsea in his career has another a bit of a subplot. But I think yeah, Atletico Simeone is one of those managers that knows what he needs to do to win and is never trying to to sacrifice a victory to fit any sort of like stylistic expectations or what people quote unquote want to see. So I think that that will be an interesting one. Last one. What, what last match would you say you're most excited for? Um, I think of the last matches, Manchester City are playing Munch and Gladbach just to round out the English teams in that. But I think the one I'm most looking forward to the remaining games is probably Atalanta versus Real Madrid. Atalanta, successful season last year, made it back into the Champions League again, surprised quite a few people. Real Madrid, perhaps not quite as impressive in on their way to, to winning the group that they qualified from. So I think this will be a a really interesting one as well. I think Atlanta have plenty of goals in them. Real Madrid have struggled a little bit on the goal front, obviously, since they lost our Lord and Savior Gareth Bale in the um, transfer window this offseason. So I think this one will be a very fascinating one for Zidane and Co. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like I like the way you put that. That It, it could be 
it, it definitely could be an interesting game and be, you know, we've seen Real Madrid stumble to Shakhtar Donetsk in the group stages. So they're certainly another team that's not terribly impenetrable at the moment. A few Europa League matches as well uh, for English sides, all four English sides going forward in the Europa League. So again, speaking to kind of more the quality of the league as a whole, we're going to have Wolfsburg against Spurs, Real Sociedad, Man United, Benfica, Arsenal, and Slavia Prague against Leicester. Any of those that you're you're quite excited for or looking forward to for any particular reason? Yeah, absolutely. I think Real Sociedad, Manchester United is the pick of the bunch. Sociedad are actually top of the league in La Liga right now, performing very, very well. One David Silva, who we mentioned earlier in the pod, is over there at Real Sociedad right now. So put that in perspective, Real Sociedad above Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid, Barcelona, like really overperforming this season. It'll be a, a great one to watch there. And Manchester United, obviously, um, who knows which version of that team will show up on any given day. Exactly. Jekyll and Hyde is what Manchester United is resembling this season. Real Sociedad, that, that is a fantastic, fantastic start to the year. Um, really, really impressive from them. Just not, not a ton of superstar names, Not maybe not really any besides Silva, but just playing so well together as a, as a coherent unit. Yeah, they do have um, Yanazai, who used to play for Manchester United. I don't know if you remember him. He's uh, playing for for um, Real Sociedad right now. So ex-Manchester United player, maybe with a point to prove. Ooh, I like that. I like that. There you go. You found the subplot there. That was good. There you go. Got lots of subplots here. Manchester City player against Manchester United and David Silva. Lots of stuff going on. Oh, very nice. Very good tie-in. Um, yeah, all, all the European games there. So, Adam... I feel like I've I've got an energy this week that you you have a you have a doozy of an armchair punt that's coming for me. Not a doozy, but very related to what we've just spoken about, Zach. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to go first. Go for it. All right. I want you to digest this one for a second and then I'll give you some some thoughts around why. No more than three English teams will advance past the next stage of European competition in February and March. No more than three. I'll give you those teams. We've got Liverpool against Leipzig. We've got Chelsea, Atletico, Man City, Mönchengladbach, Wolfsburg versus Spurs, Real Sociedad versus Manchester United, Benfica versus Arsenal, and Slavia Prague versus Leicester. I'm saying less than 50% of those teams will make it past the next round. Okay, you you clearly have a, a kind of a, a deep dive into this, so so give it to me. I do. So I think we've covered some of this stuff, but I'll try and keep it as concise as I can. Uh, Red Bull Leipzig, we've talked about them being a potential slip-up match for Liverpool. They have the best defensive record in the Bundesliga after 11 games, and they've scored 23 goals in 11 games. So strong on the offense, strong on the defense, very similar to Atletico Madrid's style. RB Leipzig, even after losing Timo Werner, still a force to be reckoned with. Um, and Liverpool are going to potentially struggle in that one. Atletico Madrid are joint top of La Liga. They've conceded four goals in 11 games. Four in 11 oh. games in La Liga. Fantastic statistic for them. And I feel like Chelsea are still a team that are finding themselves, figuring out how to play well together. Lots of newcomers and youngsters in that team. Um, and Atletico Madrid are seasoned, and they know what they're doing in this competition and otherwise. Munching um, Gladbach to round out the Champions League games. Although they're eighth in the Bundesliga, they are responsible for Inter Milan not even making it to mm-hmm. <laughs> making it to the Europa League in terms of competition. So no mugs there. I think that's probably the easiest of the three 
fixtures for the English teams in the Champions League. Moving on to Wolfsburg, they're fourth in the well, Bundesliga. You, you, you would say that that's an easy matchup, even despite how lackluster the Manchester City attack has been recently? I'm saying it's the easiest of the oppositions or matchups that English teams are facing in the Champions League. I'd rather be facing Mönchengladbach than Atletico Madrid or RB Leipzig, I guess. Okay, fair enough, fair yep. enough. Good point. Yep. So on to the Europa League. Wolfsburg are fourth in the Bundesliga. They're above Borussia Dortmund, um, Erling Haaland, ask Dortmund, and are one of only two undefeated teams alongside Leverkusen, who are joint top right now. They won't attack Spurs. They're not known really from an offensive standpoint. So I mentioned earlier on, Spurs will have to have a go at them, and I think that's where Spurs actually are weaker. Spurs are better as a counter-attacking, sitting-back team, and I don't think that will suit them in that matchup. Real Sociedad versus Manchester United. That could have Manchester United obviously qualifying for this by way of finishing third in their Champions League group. I think this is probably the hardest game they could have got in, in the competition. Real Sociedad, we mentioned top of La Liga, second best defensive record, best offensive record, 23 goals in 11 games. David Silva, Mikel Mourinho, Yanezai, it's going to be a tough one. Uh, moving on to Arsenal. Arsenal are shit right now, so that's, that's a problem for them right now, but they're playing Benfica. I feel like they're always a threat in Europe. Um, they always do well. They're, of course, doing well in the Portuguese league, second in their league. And then finally, Leicester, Slavia Prague. Um, they're top of their domestic league, and they qualified from their Europa League group alongside Leverkusen, who are a top team right now. I think they've probably got the best chance of progressing of all of those four Europa League teams, Leicester do, the most favorable matchup of them. But I think no more than three of those seven teams will advance from the next round. So, so who's it going to be? I think Leicester and Manchester City are my certs, and then pick any one of the of the remaining five teams. Wow. Okay. I like that. I like that take. I think that yeah. could definitely transpire. I feel like you're always coming at me with the knowledge of the European League, so I wanted to do a little bit of homework on this one and uh, and drop some knowledge on you. That was good. That was good. I like that. Um, okay. All right. I I guess I would say that my armchair punditry for this episode is kind of on that international um, that international basis. I and this is this is a bit of a deep dive, Adam, especially because he's now injured, not playing week in and week out. I think that Erling Holland, the striker for Dortmund, will be the next world record sum for a transfer. Okay, state your case. Basically, all that this really comes down to is how domineering he is in the Bundesliga. Like th there's nobody who can stop him defensively in the Bundesliga, Erling Holland. And I think that at some point Dortmund will probably have to sell unless they're able to win Bund the, the German league, the Bundesliga this year or next year. Um, I, or in the next like three years, let's say, I think that a team will come swinging and a Real Madrid, a Juventus, a, PSG once their strikers are out, and I, I bet somebody pays north of 115, 120 million for that player. He's unbelievable. I wouldn't be surprised. I remember when this move happened. You and I got into it because I thought it was a poor move for Holland himself, and you thought it was a great move for him because you thought he could achieve what he wanted to there. It sounds like you're backtracking a little bit on that right now, and you're saying you see this more as a stepping stone for him versus the club where he could actually spend several years. Is that fair? 
I don't know if I'd say that necessarily. I just think the price for him is going to be so high. And if a team meets it, I feel like it, it's something that Dortmund might not be able to turn down. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that to that point, it was probably not the right move for him and a player of his quality in the first place. He could be contributing and doing a lot more um, at a bigger team and a bigger club. So, all right, then to, to your point, if he goes for 115, 120, where is the most likely destination for Erling Haaland to, to end up? I think Paris Saint-Germain would not be a surprising move. Uh, they're, you know, without Cavani, they they seem like a, a turnover at striker seems somewhat likely in the next couple of years. I think Real Madrid could make a move like that, have him come in as the, the next you know, the next Benzema or the next great striker. So I'd say those are probably the two top teams that I would guess potentially. Maybe even Manchester City. Honestly, if if Jesus continues to not work out, maybe Manchester City gets in the in the hunt for him. Oh, that'd be a wonderful subplot, wouldn't it? Yeah, his, his dad having played for Manchester City, Alfinger Holland, and then his son following in his footsteps and headed to the Etihad. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I think that he I think that there's a good chance that he becomes the next record signing in Europe. I could see that for sure. All right, let's uh, let's pivot over into 10 and 90. Would you like to go first or second, sir? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure how, how I'm how I'm feeling this week. Uh, okay, I'm taking it back to England. Are you kids keeping it international? Uh, I well, it depends how you look at it. I do have a theme in mind, <laughs> but you could make a case that it's both domestic and international, I guess. Okay, I, I suppose I'll go first this this uh, this session. Uh, let's let's put it that way. So I kept mine entirely domestic, entirely in England, and actually I went even more micro with my specificity this week, Adam. I did only facts that involved the top scorers in the Premier League. Okay. Got it. When you say the top, are they the five strikers that we named earlier on in the pod? Very correct. Yes. The top five scorers in the Premier League, uh, kind of the the source of all of my questions here. So question number one, question number one for you, Adam. Uh, For what League One club has Dominic Calvert-Lewin made his second most appearances in his career? (laughs) <laughs> and i have a clue for you if you need okay. it I i'll do. repeat the question do you want me to repeat the question i got the question yep okay i got, I, I understand the question i just don't know so i'm gonna definitely take that clue off you okay because you're a big dominic Calvert-Lewin man you've been for a while yep you've, you've you've definitely got me here similar to how i've tried to get you on the lesser front in the past so well done sir <laughs> exactly all right so your clue adam is uh the club that he has the second most appearances in League One. The club nickname is the Cobblers, a reference to the town's historical shoemaking industry. <laughs> this I this see. club this club has a long-standing rivalry with nearby club Peterborough United. Oh, the posh! Um, I'm on loan at Peterborough in my career mode in FIFA 21. Just FYI, so big wow. Peterborough. Fan. Yeah, you got me. Go ahead. It's Northampton Town. Oh, there you go. Okay. The club that uh, that Dominic Calvert-Lewin has been the second most appearances in his career. Fantastic. How much did he sign for Everton for? Or was it on the loan at Northampton? That was a good question. No, he was. He started his career at Sheffield United. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Yeah. What a player. Um, 
I was curious if you knew that one as well. Uh, all right. Okay. Sticking along this theme of uh, current top scorers playing for lower division sides, what fifth division side did Jamie uh. Hardy play for before getting signed by Fleetwood Town in 2011? And again, I have a clue. <laughs> was it Stevenage? No. Okay. That was where my head was going straight off the bat. Okay, go ahead. The home of this club shares a name with a city in eastern Canada. Testing my Canadian geography here, bud. Um, exactly. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> Go ahead. Jimmy Vardy, before signing for Fleetwood Town, uh, played for FC Halifax Town. Oh, there you go. Okay. Oh. I've heard of Halifax, yeah. There you go. Uh, okay, question number three. They get progressively easier here. Don't worry. I'm not going to keep doing it like that. Drilling um, me on lower league English football. <laughs> exactly. Question number three. What championship side has Harry Kane scored his second most goals for in his career? This was online. Hmm. I'll take a clue. Okay, your clue here is uh, this club uh, is infamous for being one of the, I would say one of the most involved uh, club, like ultra or hooligans group in the history of English football. Did he play for Millwall? He did. He played wow. online at Millwall. Oof. Wow, that, that's funny. I, I didn't know Harry Kane played for Millwall. There you go. Yeah. He Very early on in his career, I'm guessing, yeah. Absolutely, it was yep. it was 2011. He scored six goals for Nor uh, Millwall. In how many appearances? It's like 31. Oh, okay, so hardly prolific for them. But here he is oh, right absolutely now. Absolutely not. Exactly. Yep. Uh, okay, question number four. Nice job. You got that one. Uh, question number I four. Am. Of which German side did Young Menson come through the academy? I mean, I've got a fair guess at this, right? Um, I'm guessing he didn't come through one of the major sites. So I'll go with Union Berlin. Oh, I like that. Uh, no, so he, do you know what club he, uh, that he was bought from, from by Spurs? I don't. He was bought by uh, Spurs from Leverkusen. And before Leverkusen, he came up in the Hamburger SV Footballing Academy. There we go. Hamburg, um, who Kevin Keegan used to play for back in the day. Really? Oh, mm -hmm. well. No, no, no. Okay, yep. question number five. What four European teams did Mohamed Salah play for before coming to Liverpool? <laughs> Shit. Uh, I got Roma for sure. Um, okay. All right, I'm going to need some clues on the other ones, my friend. On all three other ones? On all three other ones, yep. Okay. Wait, uh, wait, wait. Chelsea. 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 Sorry, Chelsea. That was an obvious one. Okay, the other two I need help though. Uh, one Italian and one non-English, non-French, non-Spanish, non-German, non-Italian. Very specific. Um, so the first, you said one Italian. Yes. Outside of Roma. Yes. Also on loan from Chelsea. Let's go with Lazio. Fiorentina. Okay. Ooh, you play for Fiorentina and Roma? Yeah. Ooh, dirty. That's like playing for Sunderland and Newcastle. You shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, last one, uh, FC Basel. That is where he started his European career. Interesting. Okay. FC Basel. Okay. 
Okay, I didn't. I didn't. I guess I might. I might have gone too too extreme with those. I I didn't realize those would be maybe a step too far. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think FC Halifax was going to be a step too far? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I should have <laughs> should have thought one through a bit more. Um, I might have got the Fleet, Fleetwood question if you'd asked me the Fleetwood question. That's true. Yep. That's true. All right, my theme for you, sir. After talking about the demise of Arsenal later on and the lack of gratitude of the Arsenal fans for knowing what they have when they have it, is Arsene Wenger. Oh, okay. I like that. I'm going to test your knowledge on Arsene Wenger. It's not necessarily going to be all about his acumen and achievements as a manager, though, Zach. Oh, no, 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 no. This is going to be a little bit more interesting. So we'll start off and set the tone with what is older, Arsene Wenger or Superglue? What the hell is happening to me right now? Um, <laughs> Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger is older. He's 71 years old, and Superglue is 69 years old. It was founded two years after Arsene Wenger. Okay. I have no idea where this is coming from, but I like it. <laughs> All right. Question number two. How many languages does Arsene Wenger speak? And bonus points if you can name a few of them. Okay. French, English. Mm -hmm. Can he speak German? He can speak German, yep. Can he speak Dutch? He cannot. Flemish? This is very obscure, no. <laughs> oh, Flemish would be pretty obscure. Uh, that's my, that's my point, is it's pretty obscure. Uh, uh, okay, I thought you meant your answer. I was like, no, Flemish is definitely obscure. Um, <laughs> can he speak Spanish? He can speak Spanish. So he got four. No way. I'll, I'll give you a clue. There's two more. He speaks six languages total. Italian and... Yep, yep. that's five. Italian and... Let's go with a rogue Danish. No, he's actually managed and played in Japan. He speaks Japanese. What? Yep. Really? Mm -hmm. That's the sixth one. Is he so he so he's a polyglot? He's a man who can just learn languages. Exactly, exactly. Very, very That's impressive. Very cool. Yep. Question number three. Arsene Wenger graduated with a master's degree from the University of Strasbourg in nineteen seventy one. What subject did he graduate with a master's in? History. Economics. Really? Yep. Smart man, smart, smart man with numbers. All right, true or false, Arsene Wenger is the only football manager to have an asteroid named after him. <laughs> um, false. It's true. 33179 Arsene Wenger is the name of an asteroid discovered by Ian P. Griffin, lifelong Arsenal fan in 1998, and 22 years later remains the only asteroid named after a football manager. That's amazing. That's a, that's a great fact. There you go. Look it up. It's a true story. All right. Question number five. How many domestic trophies? We'll take it back to, to his achievements now, just, just for the Arsenal fans so they remember what they had. How many domestic trophies did Arsene Wenger win in his 22-year stint as manager of Arsenal Football Club? Oh, man. 22 years. I'm going to say... He I'll, won. Give you, I'll give you plus or minus two. Go ahead. Okay. I'm going to say he won 36 trophies. 
Whew, that's, that's high. He won 17. Um, he won three Premier League titles. Uh, most of them were honestly um, community shields, um, but okay. he did win plenty of FA Cups as well. So never won a European trophy with Arsenal, though. Not one time in the 22 they, years he was there. They, they considered the community shield a trophy? Absolutely, it's a trophy. You get into it if you finish first or second in the league, depending on if you're champions and you're the same team wins the FA Cup or you're the FA Cup winner. So, yeah. Interesting. Mikel Arteta won two trophies in the last year. He's won the Community Shield and he's won the FA Cup. He's off to a blazing Arsene Wenger style start. That's right. Arsenal fans, just remember how good you had it. And remember how bad you're complaining right now. Arsene Wenger, you treated him so poorly. I bet you'd mm -hmm. have him back in a heartbeat. Absolutely. That's the yep. shit. I like that. I like taking that shot. All right. So finally, pronounce this Welsh word for me, Zachary. I'm going to spell it for you. T-E-U-L-U. T-E-U-L-U. Tlu? It's a good guess. Taily. Okay. And it means family. Oh, interesting. Nice. As in, as in our SB Nation family. I like that. I like that. We should do another pod with the the fellow CHN boys sometime soon. Yeah, it'd be fun to get them back on again. Always a always a good laugh when they're on. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Adam, any games you're excited for for the weekend before we close out? Yeah, I think the uh, biggest one I think for this coming weekend is going to be Spurs against Leicester. Right now, first place, third. That's the pick of the of the bunch for me. How about you, Zach? Mm -hmm. I like that one. I think that uh southampton manchester city could be an interesting match that is another one i'm very excited for as well as chelsea west ham that's west ham again another team that is performing really above what folks expected this year so far yeah i think um, another one i was thinking about was everton against arsenal is going to be a good good fixture as well this weekend mm -hmm. so excited to see if you know arteta's job's gonna be on the line soon if he doesn't start turning it around and everton obviously just coming off that win against chelsea so gonna be full of confidence it'll be an interesting game I like that. I like that prediction. Uh, a lot of good games this weekend, Adam. I'm excited uh, for the Christmas fixtures. I know that you are as well. But it's it's going to be an interesting run for, for Newcastle. That's one thing that we know for sure. It's going to be fairly telling on the direction for the season. Yeah, we need to to get some points in these next few games because we've got a tough run of fixtures coming up. But, um, you know, right after Christmas there, we've got Manchester City coming up. So that's going to be tough. Speaking of Christmas, want to wish our listeners a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, whatever you're celebrating. Enjoy your holidays. Um, Zach and I love doing the pod for you guys. Hopefully you've, you've enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the pod. And uh, looking forward to a, a more, well, how would we say this? a better 2021 than 2020 has been, let's say. I think that's a fair, fair way of putting it, Adam. But uh, yeah, for, for one more episode of the pod, footy. Footy.